Good morning, Foothill Church. Today's scripture is found in Exodus chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. Please stand for the word of the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals and over the pools and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people, that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow. Moses said, Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh And Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs, as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields. And they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thank you, Elise. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all here. Hey, before we jump in, I want to congratulate a few people. Uh, First of all, congratulations to Chris Hermosillo and Kim Sanchez on getting engaged. I saw you out there somewhere. There they are, right there. That's awesome. And then uh, Kevin and Lena Ritza are in the process of adopting, foster adopting uh, little Caselyn. I think I saw Kevin and Alina here this morning. And so we're just super, oh, there, there she is. Hi, Caselyn. Back there in the back. And that's exciting. That's awesome. Praise God for that. All right, well, let's dive in. Uh, Exodus uh, chapter 8. So a uh, little admission here. I, I really like monster movies. Like I, 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 and I'm not talking about like um, Alien or Predator. Or the, I mean, those are fine. But I like those sort of epic monsters, the, the, the Kongs of the world, right? The, the Godzilla-type movies. I'm, I'm kind of hopeful, a little bit excited about Kong versus Godzilla that's coming out here in a few weeks, and I'm, I'm hoping it's going to be good. I don't know what it is. There's something about these massive, massive creatures who can just walk and, and uh, mountains crumble. 
crumble and buildings fall over. I have this kind of dark fantasy. I'll sometimes tell my kids that I want to look up at the mountains someday and just see a giant hand coming over the top, right? And something just sort of straddling over the top of the mountain and like, boom. That'd just be epic to see this gigantic, epic, godlike creature. So I think the reason I like these is I like to see like them going after a Pacific Rim against these sort of, you know, ocean beasts or something and these massive, massive uh, conflicts. I tell you that because really when we come to Exodus, what Lucas started us in last week and then as we continue today, what you see here, we could call this whole section on the plagues, the battle of the gods. Now, don't be mistaken, this is not Kong versus Godzilla in the sense that I'm not sure who's going to win, I'm rooting for Kong, but like, it's it's more, it's the idea that, that what's happening here is not just God doing these random type of plague things. Every one of these, these plagues in some ways connects to a God that the Egyptians would have worshipped. Now, now, lest we disconnect from that, here's what I mean. The things they would look to to prop them up, the things they would look to to say, this is how I know I'm significant, the things that I knew that I would look to to, to, to help me find security, all these things, God is going to piece by piece just flick off one after another. And make no mistake, it's not an even battle. God will, by the time this is over, humiliate the gods of Egypt. In fact, in Exodus chapter 12, toward the end of that verse, he's going to say this, I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. When we get to Numbers, Moses is looking back and says, the Lord had defeated the gods of Egypt that night with great acts of judgment. So what you have here is a battle of the gods going on. You have God versus these pretenders, and it's not going to be a fair fight. And God's going to show that he is, he is uh, the one. He's going to do what he said he would do so that Pharaoh will know, so that Israel knows, so that Egypt will know, so that we will know that he is God, he is the Lord, and there's no one like him. Now, I titled today's sermon, God versus uh, Frog Lady. And that's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but you're going to see it actually bears out in history. So I'm going to show you why it's called that. I wasn't just trying to be humorous. I was trying to show you there's something real going on. There is a battle of gods that is happening within the context of these verses, okay? So let's just start into it. Exodus chapter 8, verse 1. The first thing I want you to see is what God demands is worship. And here's what I mean. All I want you to see here is that God's agenda hasn't changed. This is always what God is after. This is always what God is trying to do as he rescues people. So in verse 1, we read, the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. We've talked about this this book really being a picture of salvation and what God does when he saves people, when God rescues people, he doesn't rescue them into some sort of neutral territory. He doesn't rescue them so now, hey, do whatever you want. He rescues us so that we will serve him, so that we will worship him. You understand that biblically speaking, you are always serving someone always. There is no time when you are not serving. In fact, the Bible's even going to call it slavery. So Jesus in John chapter 8 says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Do you know this? That if, that if your life is one that you've not put your faith in Jesus, you look at your life, the Bible, Jesus himself is going to evaluate you and say, you are a slave to sin. 
Peter's going to say in 2 Peter, whatever overcomes a person to that he is enslaved. So we are enslaved to someone. The question is, are you enslaved to this despotic ruler like a pharaoh, like the enemy, like Satan and sin? Or are you in slavery and servanthood to the good God who will send his own son to die for you, who will care for you, who will love you, provide for you? And so God's agenda is still the same. He's still demanding that what happens when God rescues, he wants worship. But now let's look at verses two through six. And what I want you to see here is the cost of idolatry. And what's the cost of idolatry? You can just say frogs, right? And we might say it this way, frogs, frogs, and more frogs. Now, obviously I don't mean that you're going to have a plague of frogs, but, but the reason I, I state it that way is I want you to see what's going on beneath the surface. This is not just a plague of frogs. So, so watch what happens here. First of all, verses two through four, right? We get the, the warning. So he says, uh, but if you refuse to let them go, behold, I'll plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come into your house and your bed and uh, your bedroom and your bed and the house of your servants and your ovens, your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come upon you and on your people and on all your servants. There's the warning. And then we get the event, verses five and six. He says, okay, now go stretch out your, the, your rod, Aaron, and, and make these frogs come up. So Aaron does that and the frogs come up and it says it covered the land of Egypt in verse six. Now, what, what, what's going on here? First of all, notice there's no conversation with, uh, with Pharaoh in between verses four and five. We'd expect that, but it's almost like Moses is saying, hey, no need to give you that conversation. You know what happened. Pharaoh didn't listen. So, so here comes Aaron. He stretches out his rod and hear what, hear what happens. The, the, the frogs start coming. And we might think frogs, no big deal, right? I mean, a lot of kids like to play with frogs. We go out and we look for frogs. Well, there's no looking. There was no wanting. There was, this wasn't cute. This wasn't fun. This was a swarm. It was an invasion. It was an army of frogs. My mom told me a story when I was little. We lived in Sacramento near kind of a swampy area. And she told me there was this one season, something happened. And, and uh, there was a bunch of frogs that came out of this, this, uh, this, this swamp near us. And they started coming up. And she said, you looked out on the street and it looked like the street was moving. Like, now imagine this. This is everywhere. This is covering the land of Egypt. This is in places you would never expect to find a frog, like an oven, like a, like a kneading bowl. Michelle was kneading some dough this morning. And I'm sitting here thinking, what if she was like, what's that inside? Oh my gosh, there's a frog, right? You'd go into your bed thinking, I'm safe here. And what happens in bed? There's, there's a frog or frogs inside of your bed. And they went everywhere. They, didn't, they were no respecter of persons. They went into Pharaoh's bedroom. They went into servant's bedroom. They they were everywhere. They were overrun with this frog. Now, why frogs? This is where the frog lady becomes important. Um, in Egyptian theology, they worshiped a god by the name of Hecate, or Hecht, sometimes called H E Q E T. She was a goddess. And she was half woman, or I might say a body of a woman, the head of a frog. Now, here's something interesting just to note for your own edification. Um, whenever fertility, she's the goddess of fertility, by the way, whenever fertility is deified in ancient mythology, it is almost always done through a woman, female form, right? That is because why? Because she carries the baby. 
So we want to have a baby. We need fertility. And then it's combined with a frog. What? Why a frog? Because again, almost always, if you're going to combine the animal world with the human world and create this God of fertility or goddess of fertility, then you're going to go and look for something in your environment that reproduces very, very quickly. And we all know frogs lay thousands of eggs, right? And then they turn into what? You know, the, 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 the little the polywogs, whatever they're called. And then they turn the frog right there. I mean, just everywhere. Right, so, so what happens is we go, I mean, think of this like a dog breeder. This is like, all right, you know what I'd like? I'd like the cuteness of a Labrador and the hypoallergenicness of a, of a poodle. Let's put them together and I get a Labradoodle, right? Well, what happens here is I, wanna, I want to have a human baby. I want the fertility of a frog. I put them together. I get my frog lady God. And now we worship that. And she's the one who will, who will give us all the children that we need. Uh, interestingly, by the way, uh, so there would have been like fertility celebrations. There have been all kinds of stuff that happened around Hecate and the worship of Hecate. Um, uh, every culture does this. Did you realize we have a fertility celebration in America? Um, it's in the spring. I'll give you a hint. It revolves around an animal that breeds very, very quickly and weirdly lays eggs, right? Easter, now obviously Christians at Easter are not celebrating a bunny, um, but, but isn't it interesting that we, we this, this Easter was actually co-opted, uh, that holiday was co-opted by Christians out of a pagan environment that would have been worshiping the spring and this new life and reproduction and fertility. And so we grab, they, they grab the Easter bunny, which or the bunny, which reproduces very quickly. And there's eggs scattered all over. So when your kids are going for the Easter egg hunt, they're just picking up objects of fertility. So happy Easter egg hunt this year, right? But, it, but everybody does this, right? This is, this, is, this is everywhere, and this is what's happening in Egypt. They look and they say, this is, the, this is the goddess who will give us fertility. And she is a critical, crucial god. Why? Why is it so important that people have babies? Now, this might be hard for us in modern sort of times. Look, we all get it. Babies and children are a gift, right? We, we, we think of them this way. And I'm not talking about now Christians, but the culture would go, okay, this is kind of what we do. We get married or not, and we have children because that's just kind of what we're supposed to do. And children are fun and they're cute and all kinds of things we can say about them. But, but that's not what's going on in the ancient Near Eastern world. I mean, this is not only I need my name to pass on from generation to generation. This isn't just about having children. This is about having security. This isn't a time where there was no 401k and there was no pension or retirement account. So what did you do? You just have children. You have as many as you possibly can because in that you guarantee your future survival. I'm banking on this group of people to help me get through my future. You see what's happening here? This is not just hecked will give us a lot of children. This is Hecht is a God of provision. Hecht is the one who secures my future. Hecht is the one who will make sure I'm provided for because the alternative would have been devastating. 
I mean, go read the book of Ruth and you'll get a sense of what might happen if you didn't have any children or, 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 or offspring to help you. you Ruth and Naomi are at, at the beginning of the book just bitterly disappointed at what the, what the Lord has handed them because they would have been destitute had God not intervened. So here's this, here's this goddess that this whole land looks to for provision. Now, let's do some other little other side study here. What happens when an animal or an object is associated with um, deity? Like, we tend to treat objects like that carefully, solemnly, don't we? Right? A cross, you know, not very many people are are stomping on them. If you wear a cross, it's your kind of, you know, it's made out of gold or whatever. It might be a precious metal. Or, or, or if you go and you see the icons within, say, the Roman Catholic Church, all these things connected to God require some kind of reverence from those that are, are looking at it or handling it or whatever. If you get into these other, you go into other cultures, like you, you, you go to Thailand who recognize the king is, is, is deified. Like you don't, you don't do anything that would harm an image of the king. So, so, so what would happen in a culture that would look at the frog as being a symbol, if nothing else, of deity? Interestingly, in ancient Egypt, you couldn't kill that frog. In fact, if you wantonly killed that frog, there's some scholarly research that suggests that you, would be, you could be executed yourself because that's, that's a manifestation of hect. This is this, this, you know, this yearly thing would happen. You know, the, the frogs would, would breed. They'd hop up. Nothing like the plague, but, but here they are overrun by this God. To the point they're like, no more. We don't want anything. And they can't do anything about it. They are sick of their God. She has utterly failed them. Now, by the way, this is an image that you're going to see throughout Scripture that what God does very often, he'll talk like this. Um, Romans chapter 1, he gave them over to the lusts of their hearts. He gave them what they craved. I mean, just look at your, read, read Psalm 73, for example. David's just perplexed. Why is it that, that wicked people who hate God are fat and happy and rich and live in luxury and here are the people of God suffering? And then he says, until I went in to the temple of the Lord, into the sanctuary, and then I perceived their end and I understood what was gonna happen to them versus what was gonna happen to me. Very often, God will give to the wicked what they want. Do you understand that if you have everything you want, if God is filling you up with your craving, your lust, it's not a sign of blessing. It's a sign of judgment. And here is Egypt being overrun with their goddess. I will give you her fertility until literally by the end of this passage, she stinks in your nose. 
Because I want you to see that I'm the giver of life. I want you to see that I'm the provider. I know your future. I give you hope. Now listen, there's all kinds of things we could say about this, right? Maybe you're a young couple and saying, man, we've, we've been desperately trying to have a baby and, and we've gone to doctors and specialists to which I would say, praise God for the common grace of God to give us medical science and doctors like that. But, but we are mistaken if our hope is there. We're mistaken if we say, my hope is in, is in uh, medical science or this doctor or that doctor. God's saying, I'm the giver of life. Only I can do that. And see, so for some of you, that means that God will defy medical science and that would say you could never have a baby and give it to you. For others, it'll be, it'll be the foster and adopting. It'll be this beautiful thing that God does in your life. But it's God at the end saying, I'm the one who grants this to you or doesn't. I'm the one that opens and closes the womb. Don't look to get your hope anywhere else. I'm the one who's got your future under control. Don't hope in science. Don't hope in Wall Street. Don't hope in a 401k. Don't hope in a, 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 big, a big group of children that might be able to support you someday. Hope in me. Put your hope in me. That's why God's saying over and over as we go through this, so that they may know that I am God. I want Israel to know this. I want Egypt to know this. I want you to know this 21st century Christian. That I am the Lord and there is none like me. What happens, the cost of idolatry is we get overrun with the thing that we crave. So what's the remedy? The remedy is, look at verses 7 through 11, the remedy is a mediator. So what happens in these verses? You've got, you've got the, the, the magicians. Pharaoh says, hey, can you take care of this? By their secret arts, isn't this interesting? They made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. They couldn't get rid of them, but they could make more of them. They could, make, they could create bigger problems. They couldn't solve a problem. This is always what happens with sin. This is always what happens with the enemy. He never makes your problem better. He makes it worse. Then it goes on and says, Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord. Notice the word Lord there in your Bibles. It's capital L and then lower caps O-R-D. That's the word Yahweh. That's the covenant name of God. To take away the frogs from me and my people and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I'm to plead for you and your, for your servants and for your people. The frogs may be cut off from you and your houses and be left in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow. And Moses said, Be it as you say so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away and you and your spouse and your houses and your servants and your people, they shall be left only in the Nile. So what happens? Magicians can't do it. So, so Pharaoh does something amazing. He goes and asks Moses and Aaron and he asks them to pray to Yahweh. Now there's a couple of things we need to notice here. First of all, Pharaoh is admitting who's in charge. He's recognizing now that God is the one. He's powerless against Yahweh. And second of all, notice this. He's asking for a mediator to go between he and God. He's so close. But isn't this so typical of a lot of people? There's a lot of people who would say, number one, I believe there is a God. I might even believe he's the Christian God or the biblical God. 
But number two, what I realize, there's almost an intuitive sense within human beings that say, what I need is somebody qualified, in quotes, to go between me and God. You ever had this happen? At work, somebody knows you're a Christian. Would you pray for me? Why? You're one of those that sort of has special access. This happens to pastors all the time. They think we have a VIP pass and get to do what you can't do. What they, what they don't believe is that the only mediator is Jesus. The only one who goes between us and God is Jesus. Do you understand? You and I, no one in the world has unmediated access to God. Hebrews chapter four doesn't say you can come boldly before the throne of grace just because. It says you can do that because we have a great high priest. We have one who mediates for us. So now we come boldly into the presence of God. And so what's happening, right? This is, this is Pharaoh going, I need a solution but like a lot of people, he doesn't want a savior. We'll look at that in a moment. See, see, it's possible. Pharaoh knows God's name. Pharaoh is beginning to recognize that God is powerful. He's going to know it unequivocally by the end. He knows that God requires worship. And he's still far off. See, it's possible. Hear me if you're listening to me today. It's possible for you to know a lot about God and not know God and not be in relationship with God. You can have all your theology right and be so far from God. This is Pharaoh. How different. What would it have been like if Pharaoh would have just said, Moses, Aaron, I realize I have sinned against a holy God. I realize my heart has been hardened against him. I want to be forgiven. I want to plead with God for mercy. I have a different book. But Moses prays, and notice he says to Pharaoh, hey, pick the time, and he does that. Interestingly, Pharaoh says tomorrow. Like, what? Like, you know what? I want the frogs just one more day. I'm kind of getting used to them. I like them. He says tomorrow, and, and, and Moses says, okay, you pick the time. This is not some seasonal abnormality. This isn't something that's going to be able to be written off and saying, you know, we can explain it in naturalistic terms. You're going to watch this, Pharaoh. I'm going to go pray, and it's going to go so that you will know that he is God and there is no other. Now, look at this, verses 12 through 14. Notice the means of deliverance is prayer. So, look at verse 12. So Moses and Aaron went from Pharaoh and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps and the land stank. So there it is. Hecht is now a stench to these people. But here's what I want you to see. Moses, look, he goes in and it says he, it didn't just make a nonchalant prayer. The word used there is this idea of calling out, pleading, passionate, crying to God. Oh God, please release this place from this plague. Now why? Like, isn't this interesting that like Moses wasn't just casual and going, look, I know these things kind of happen. It's just going to happen. So, so um, uh, God is just going to do his thing. So God, do your thing and, and, uh, and get rid of it. No, he pleads with God. Why does he do that? I think he knows 
that God's reputation is on the line. He's concerned about the glory of God. He's concerned, God, you've got to make your name known among him. You've got to do this because you said that you would. Christian, are are you concerned in your request to God about his glory or just your good? Now, those things don't have to be opposite to one another. God wants both of those. But how often are we desperately concerned with the glory of God? God, I want you to be glorified in this answer to prayer. I want you to receive glory from what I'm asking for. I feel like your reputation is on the line here, God. Please vindicate your own glory, God. Show yourself powerful. Moses pleads and God answers. Now here again, it would seem that prayer was unnecessary, except that when we read our Bibles over and over, we're going to hear that prayer is very often the means that God ordains to accomplish his already determined will. Do you follow me there? Jesus said that if you ask anything according to the will of God, it will be done. Now, doesn't that strike you as redundant? It's the will of God. But you need to pray. So the wheels are spinning. God's saying, I'm going to do this. But prayer is the chuck behind the wheel that you pull off to get it going. Do you know, almost always in scripture, the way God accomplishes his purposes in the world is through prayer. We talked about this several weeks ago. This is what God does. God comes on and says, I'm going to do something, but I require that you pray. You have anxiety? Cast your anxiety upon me in prayer. You need wisdom? Then listen, anybody who lacks wisdom, let him ask of God and he'll give it generously and without reproach. Or or think of that, I love that, that, that hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Right? Oh, oh, what, oh, what, Peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Because we simply don't pray. And God's saying, look, cry out to me. What do you need from God? Do you understand, Christian? Everything you need from God will be found in the place of prayer. God is there, mighty and willing to answer when we cry out to him. Moses prays, God answers. But now notice this. Look at verse 15 because what did Pharaoh really want? He just wanted breathing room. Look at verse 15 with me. He says, but when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, note that word, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. What that literally says is when Pharaoh saw that there was room, he hardened his heart. Isn't this this typical? Isn't this... We make and bargain with God. Lord, get me out of this jam. I, 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 I feel stuck. I feel hemmed in. I feel like I can't get out. I, 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 don't, I, feel, I feel like I can't breathe. Please, please, God, I plead with you. If you'll do this, man, I, I, I'll, you'll be my Lord and Savior. I'll walk with you all the days of my life. When what we really mean is, man, just give me, give me room. Get me out from under this problem. And then I can get back to living my life without you. So for Pharaoh, God is a means to an end. He's not the end itself. The frogs are out of sight. God is out of mind. My problem is over. I don't need God anymore. 
This is a picture of a rebellious, unregenerate human heart. Like how many of us have done this? We sin. We start to feel the consequences of that sin. We put ourselves into this jam, into this pickle, into this sticking place, into this tragedy and whatever it is. And we say, oh God, get me out of this. I'll serve you for the rest of my life. God graciously helps you. And then you go back on your word. All you needed was breathing room. That's all Pharaoh needed. See, this is a warning for those who make a hasty temporary commitment to God that falls short of saving faith. Think about, I think it's Matthew 21 where Jesus tells the parable of the two sons and he says there were these two sons and the father told them to go out and work in the field. One says, nope, I won't do it and goes. The other says, uh, yes, I will, but doesn't go. Pharaoh's the second son. I'll do it and then goes back on his promise. I'm not going to write, or the parable of the soils where they receive the word of God. Okay, the God's word can get me out of this pickle and then it's snatched away. Or that really awful like verse where Jesus says that there's coming a day when God's going to separate people and and, and he'll say, you know, you're, you're among the goats, you're among the sheep. And, and one goes into everlasting torment, the other to everlasting life. And one group says, wait, Jesus, didn't we do this? Or didn't we do that? Didn't we have this in your name? And God, didn't we make promises? And we, were, we did all these sort of pious things for you. Say, depart from me. I never knew you. You're not one of us. See, salvation is for those who follow through. It's for those who repent and believe, who fly to Christ as their only refuge from the plagues. A a false promise of obedience will never lead to eternal life. A saying to God or to yourself, I'll do it someday, will never save you. Doesn't matter how much you think that's true. If you don't repent and you don't believe, then there's wrath coming for those. But if you want to be saved, you come to Christ, you repent and believe. And then you're saved. That's what's happening here. Pharaoh has no desire to be saved. He just wants room. I hope that's not you today. I hope you're not somebody who says, just give me some breathing room so I can get on with my life. What does it profit a man if he gets out from under the pickle, if he gains the whole world and loses his soul, Jesus said. May God have mercy and help us that we will be people who will make real commitments to Jesus, repent of our sin, put our faith in him and follow him all the days of our lives. Let's pray together. Father, Uh, We thank you. We thank you for your word. And we thank you, God, for teaching us uh, through this passage. And I just pray, I want to pray right now, especially for maybe there are those who have made empty promises to you, those who who have tried to live under a sense of false piety. That God, rather, what would replace that would be 
a genuine saving repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, flying to Christ, finding their refuge in him, realizing they can't save themselves. And for those of us who name the name of Christ and have put our faith in Jesus, I pray that today would be another reminder that God, you are our provider. You are our protector. You deserve the glory. You are where we have our hope. It is not in the false gods of this world that we all put our trust in every single day. Turn our hearts back to you, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.